all Gdoli Yisrael, since the Rambam onward, their view of the Ikari Yamuna has always been guided by one principle, and that is given where I, the various Gdoli Yisrael, where I am living, the time that I am, that I am living in, the community that I am addressing, what is their spiritual needs? What do I need to tell them about the Ikare Emuna or any one of them that will lead them to greater Yirat Shamayim and Kiyom HaMitzvot? Full stop. It just turns out that in different times, different Gedolim have told different people different things. But that is what has always guided them. And that's what guides us today as well. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Some of the most serious challenges to traditional Orthodox faith come from academic approaches to the Bible, including what's generally termed biblical criticism. The Rambam formulated 13 principles of faith. His eighth principle is succinctly, though inexactly, summarized in the well-known Animamin, which says, I believe with perfect faith that the entire Torah found currently in our possession is that which was given to Moshe, our teacher. While this is far from a perfect summary of the actual words of the Rambam, it's close enough to give anyone who has familiarity with both lower and higher biblical criticism pause. How should a religious Jew relate to academic study of the Torah and the challenges it presents? Are we forced to live with the questions? Or are there compelling approaches which defend the traditional view while also being acceptable in the academy? Should a person stay away from these questions altogether? Or is the search for truth paramount, even as it may be dangerous? To answer these and many other questions, I was honored to speak to Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman, professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University. In fact, I recently had the honor and pleasure of producing a podcast where Rabbi Berman was a guest. The podcast is called Shoulder to Shoulder. It's hosted by my friends Rabbi Pesach Wolicki and Pastor Doug Reed. On that episode, Rabbi Berman discussed the issue of biblical literalism and how it relates to both Jews and Christians. I recommend you check that out as well. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for the Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman is a professor of Tanakh at Bar-Ilan University, a graduate of Princeton University and of Yeshivat Haaretzion. Rabbi Berman is the author of two academic books on the five books of the Torah. His articles on biblical theology and contemporary society have appeared in the pages of Mosaic Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Rabbi Dr. Berman served as a member of the International Advisory Board for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., Rabbi Berman's latest book, and the focus of this week's episode of this podcast, is Ani Ma'amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical Accuracy, and the 13 Principles of Faith. 
Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you, Scott, and Shavua Tov, and Shana Tova to all of our viewers and listeners. Before we get into the heart of what we're going to talk about today, I want to ask about the book that you published last year entitled Anima Amin. This book is very important and addresses crucial issues that come up from academic Bible study. Before we get into the specifics about academic approaches to the Torah, some of the problems that are raised by those approaches, and what a religious Jew may respond to them, I want to ask you why you wrote this book. What was your reasoning and the reason that you wrote it now specifically? Right. So I think that for for many, many, many years, this was an issue that maybe people had heard about, but it wasn't really on the agenda. And it wasn't something that very many people uh, had much interest in, let alone really being bothered by it. Uh, I I recall when I was in yeshiva, I I learned in yeshiva Haritzion in the mid 80s. And I remember hearing that there were some fellows that were that were learning about biblical criticism. And I thought to myself, wow, just to do that, they'd have to get on a bus and travel into Yerushalayim and make their way to the National Library and then figure out, you know, God knows where to go and what to look for. Wow, that's like, that's really quite an effort. And that's not the case anymore. You don't have to go on a bus for an hour uh, and to the National Library and figure out what books to, in fact, you don't have to go anywhere. In fact, even if you're not looking for biblical criticism, it comes washing through your computer screen, whether you want to or not. Because if you're on, if you know, if you're if you're on the internet uh, and reading widely, you know, blogs and and newspaper sites, this stuff comes up. Just you know, if you're just reading Times of Israel, this stuff that relates to this all the time. And so we are in a different age. Um, and. What I discovered uh, with some colleagues about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, really, as we were all getting onto the internet at the same time, uh, is that there were more and more people who were being exposed to this and with very little orientation of what to do with this, because this is not the stuff that you teach, you know, a good Jewish boy and girl. Uh, and so no one really had the, uh, the wherewithal uh, to deal with this. And it just seemed to me that there was a community-wide responsibility for someone, uh, I, I view myself as, as, as first and foremost as a mechanic. It's rabbi professor. That, that, that's the order and that's what it is. Uh, academia is just chinuch by another name. That's, that's how I see it. Uh-huh. Uh, and so therefore, even if this is, I mean, it's actually the, the, the book Anima Amin is based on an academic book that I published with Oxford University Press, but it was, it was important to give it in a presentation that would be more accessible for uh, a, a wide Jewish audience. Uh, and with more uh, of a Jewish orientation. That is, if we discuss the importance of reading and learning the Torah in its ancient Near Eastern context to show how this is not at all a newfangled idea, that the Rambam did this all the time, and we're really just following here in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I saw that there was a real need for this, and this was a 10-year project. Uh, I was kind of shocked even. I was part of a a kind of a, a study group, a think group, think tank, if you want to call it, of prominent religious educators here in Israel and Bible scholars, the T Bible scholars, who all wanted to get together and kind of find a way to produce something for our community. And what I discovered is that I was the fundamentalist, that I really believed that there was, you know, Tarmina Shemaim and that, you know, Yitzhia Smitzrayim really happened. I was like, oh boy, there's a lot of work to do here. And it took 10 years to do the academic version and the academic version, but the time is right because um, um, more and more people are, are being exposed to this at all ages and all stages. There are no more walls, no, no filter on the internet manages to catch biblical criticism. In that case, what was the response from the Orthodox community per se to the book Anima Amin? Was it a positive response in general? Was there criticism? So I would say this, I, you know, I wrote the book primarily, I guess, Scott, for the type of audience that's listening here today, people who, you know, broadly speaking, would identify themselves as either Datili Umi or modern Orthodox or, you know, central Orthodox, a YU orientation. Uh, and I'm, I'm pleased that, that, that it, you know, that it has received a, a very warm uh, response there. I get emails daily, daily about this stuff or Facebook messages. But what's really shocked me has been the response to the left and to the right. What do you mean? To the left, I have I have a standing invitation to uh, present the material in the book as a course at JTS. And what I've discovered is that there are a lot of liberal Jews, conservative and reformed Jews, or Reconstructionist or other other uh, denominations that are that are out there, who are really looking to see well to what extent does the Torah really hold together. To what extent is there 
evidence for the historical accuracy of what's going on here. And even though they might have, you know, they might be open to, to uh, critical approaches, what I'm doing is also a critical approach. This is not apologetics. I am using the tools of academia to make these arguments. And as I said before, this all appeared first in, an, a, book spot, in a book that I put out with Oxford University Press. So that's on the left. Uh, and some other groups also, the rabbinical groups from uh, AJS, which is roughly similar, uh, at least for those of us in the Orthodox world, to, to JTS. And I had a, a meet the author meeting over Zoom with uh, about a dozen of their rabbinical alumni, and they were very excited about it. So that shocked me. You know, the, the people on the left would not just be out there, you know, seeking to uphold at all costs JEPND and no, it was not from Sinai and nothing was from Sinai and it's not from God. No, they're really, they're, they, they also want to feel, where is the divinity in this work? But the even bigger surprise, Scott, has been from the right. Interesting. Has been from the right. What was the response from the right? The, the, the right is not monolithic anymore, as, uh, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I, there's no God Lador that I know of that has come out and said, everyone has to go buy this book and put it, you know, next to their shtender in the base of measures. No, that hasn't happened. But, you know, a lot of the yeshiva world now today is uh, there's a lot going on under the shtender, as they say. Uh, a lot that goes on online in quiet conversations between people and between people, neighbors and between people over the internet. And I have a long list of the yeshivas uh, whose graduates or where people are still learning who reach out to me with interest about this material and are very thankful for the book, including Gateshead and the Mir and uh, Rav Tzviz and Lakewood, uh, uh, and Skokie, and, and, and I could go on and on. I have a group of fellows from uh, Williamsburg, Satmer Hasidim, who invited me. I spent a Shabbos in Williamsburg talking to dozens, dozens of Sa- full Satmer, like, you know, not former Satmer, not, you know, unorthodox Satmer, 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 people who are living there deep in the community who want to be deep in the community. Authentic Satmer. But, yes, yes, you know, this, the whole, the whole bit, you know. And it was great. And they're very open-minded. You see, what's happening in a lot of the Haredi world is this. Because so many people are online, whether that's mutter or not mutter, you know, in their world, but they're online. They're online. And um, a a lot of people in that world have not been given the wherewithal to deal with modernity. You see, some some versions of the yeshivish world uh, are very good at this, especially Chabad and Breslov. They might not have particular answers, you know, what do you say about J and E, but they give their, their followers an orientation to modernity and its challenges and what to do. And then there are other parts of the, of, of, of the Haredi world, both the Litvisha world and the Hasidisha world, where they just have their blinders on, where it's like, we're just going to do and think whatever we've always done, and that will be enough. And we don't have new challenges, and therefore we don't need new resources, and it's leaving a lot of their faithful you know, with real questions, because people want to serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu la'avdecha be'emes. They want to serve with the midah of truth. And when they see, you know, intelligent questions, not all questions posed by biblical critics are anti-Semitism. It's just not so. It's just not so. And they know it. And therefore, they're in an honest, an honest search to serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu with the midah of emes. And I have, and therefore, I have received lots and lots of positive response an interaction thereafter from the book on the right. Oh, that's wonderful. What you just said reminds me of something I read in Rabbi Amnon Bazak's book, Ad Hayom Hazeh, where he describes answering some of these questions the way that the Rishonim do. Rashi will address some of these questions as well. And he says, I think very courageously and honestly, he said, essentially, Im Kabbalah if this works, that's fine. But we have to be honest. Just because Rashi or the Ramban or the Ibn Ezra answers a question we have to say, okay, but does he answer it compellingly enough for the specific academic question at stake such that I say, oh, that really does answer the question, or is it that I'm already assuming that I know what the answer is, and therefore this answer is working within a system? Would it, would it effectively, I guess he means, um, satisfy an academic? So mm-hmm. I see what you mean in terms of the need mm-hmm. to address them honestly, and not every answer is so simple. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to get in right now to the Parsha we just read, because let's talk about the meat of the book and the meat of the issue. We just finished Parsha Breshit. It was one of the most famous examples of one of the academic approaches apparently conflicting with the classic Chazal approach, which Rav Soloveitchik famously addressed in The Lonely Man of Faith. We have four for example, 
apparently two stories of creation, Perak Aleph and Perak Bet, maybe even more than two, and they don't say the same thing. They're literally different. They have different names of God. Their style is different. The story is different. So using that as a backdrop, how would you, as an academic, using the tools of academia, respond as a religious Jew? Right. So, and it's, I would just go even further. It's not just that the stories are different. They contradict. They contradict in terms of the order in which things were created. It's really hard to mesh it all into one uh, chronological coherent story of how the world was created. So this is a wonderful example, Scott, of one of the major fault lines and drawbacks of how uh, Bible critics work. And that is that they say, okay, we have what appears to our eyes uh, to be something that we would call an inconsistency or a fissure, meaning a break in the text. Nobody would write this way. Nobody would write two contradictory stories. And therefore the conclusion must be that they, is that the materials here, Perak Aleph and Perak Bet, originate from, from different hands, from different authors. And maybe they were somehow brought together at a later point. Now, the, the original sin here is the belief by many critics, nearly all, I would say, that do this type of work, is that the, I possess, I, the Bible critic, possess an understanding of literary unity. I know, I just need to read honestly, and I can tell when something coheres, it holds together nicely, and when something is jarring and inconsistent. And my standards of what that would be are clearly what any writing and thinking person would have thought at any time in history. And therefore, it's all the same. If it doesn't work for me, then it couldn't have ever worked for anybody. This is now, we now know, we can document this as untrue, that aesthetics, aesthetics about what we wear, aesthetics about how we look, aesthetics about how we decorate our, our homes, aesthetics about the music we listen to, and aesthetics about how we write, change from culture to culture. That is clear. But what is especially clear and important for our discussion is that when we look at other writings from other cultures, from the time of the Tanakh, where we know with absolute certainty that, that compositions that we're familiar with from these other cultures were written by one single person or one authority who, who authorized the composition of a certain text, we find all of these types of quote unquote inconsistencies and contradictions within those very same compositions, which means that their sense of literary unity was different than our own. I'll give, a, I'll give an example in a moment. Our notion of literary unity whether we know it or not, whether we've heard the name or not, is all of us, all of us who are speaking English, who were raised in the West, our notion of, huh, that looks like it's a contradiction. That comes from Aristotle. Aristotle had a work called the Poetics. You maybe never read the Poetics, but believe me, if you are breathing Western air, your notion of what is consistent or what is inconsistent is Aristotle's. And Malasot, what can we do? The writers of ancient Israel didn't read Aristotle. Okay, I'll give you one example of this outside of Israel. Yes, please. Okay, okay. so uh, a lot of scholars, uh, yours truly uh, uh, included, believe that the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and we can talk about the historical accuracy of the Exodus as we move on, but for this por portion of the conversation, it doesn't really matter, uh, was, was uh, the greatest Pharaoh of ancient Egypt, uh, Ramses II, Ramses the Great. Ramses the Great, his, if you asked him, and you can ask him, you can ask his mummy because it's on display at the, at the, at the, at the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum of Art. Um, if you were to ask him, what was your greatest achievement? We know what the answer would be. He had this huge battle against his arch enemy, the Hittite Empire uh, in 1274 BCE. Ramses the Great ruled for about 80 years. And when he comes back from that battle against the, the Hittites who were in modern day Turkey, uh, he plasters all of Egypt with accounts of this battle. It's actually the ancient event that is more publicized in ancient times than any other event. By that, I mean, you know, if we take like, you know, the destruction of, of the Second Temple, and we know that in Rome, and many of us have visited there, you can go to the Arch of Titus, right? And you can see a commemoration of the destruction of Jerusalem. One commemoration. There is one Arch of Titus, okay? In Egypt, we know of at least 10 places where Ramses II put up accounts of the battle 
of Kadesh, it's called, not Kadesh Barnea, which we have in Chumash, but Kadesh that's located in, in modern day Syria against the Hittites, 10 different accounts that he, that, that he wrote. And what we see about that in 10 different places, rather, 10 accounts in 10 different places, in many of those places, one right next to the other, he puts up differing accounts of the battle, sometimes two and sometimes three differing, contradicting accounts of that battle. And you say, wait a minute, what's good? And we know because these, these, these monuments are built all at once that it's all written at the same time. So what's going on here? And what Egyptologists say, Lahavdil, is what Rav Soloveitchik said about Breshit Aleph and Breshit Bet, that each account is coming to highlight a different idea, a different message, and therefore it takes liberty with some of the details in order to highlight that, that, that message. So in the case of the Battle of Kaddish, one account highlights the salvation that Ramses II felt that he was getting from his god, Amun. The second account highlights his gevura, his bravery, as he single-handedly, so it says, took on 2,500 Hittite chariots, and of course he won. If you look in the Hittite sources, they have a different story, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and then the third account highlights the bravery of one particular brigade of Egyptian troops that was there at the site. So that what they would do back then is that in order to highlight different messages, they wrote the story in slightly different ways. Or as someone recently put it to me very beautifully, ancient writers, what they were engaging in was painting, not photography. So that hmm. they take some liberties with it. And let me just say for, for, for uh, listeners that are out there like, whoa, wait a minute, Rabbi Berman, what you're suggesting then is that maybe Breshit Aleph isn't 100% factually true, and maybe even Breshit Bet isn't 100% factually true, and that we're, we've kind of moved around, we're playing with the facts a little bit. Yes, that is exactly what's going on. And I'm not the first to say this. Rav Cook said this, okay? Rav Cook writes, he has a work called Ein Ayah. It's a book, it's, it's a work about Agadah on Shas. Uh, he didn't get very far through Shas with it, but in, in Masechet Shabbat, he has a, he says the following line. He says, and he's, you know, he was a modern person. These issues of biblical criticism, right. historical accuracy were already very present in his time. They existed in his day, of course. The turn of the sure. century. Yeah. Yeah. And he says the following. He says, all stories in the Tanakh are written for the purpose of inculcating a message to the soul of the reader or the listener of the story. When the Tanakh feels, and by this he includes the Torah, he says this explicitly, when the Torah feels that a mere presentation of the facts exactly as they happened without any change will suffice to leave the necessary imprint on the soul of the person learning Chumash, then the Torah makes do with just the facts. But when uh, the, fa the, the message that the Torah wants to give over will be uh, best imparted uh, by embellishing those facts a little bit. What he calls a levush, the Torah has no qualms with imposing a levush on the basic core of, of the story, which is which remains and which is true. There you have it. There's a huge amount to unpack over here. So I want to go through just step by step and understand a few things. Let's first speak about that last idea you mentioned in the name of Rav Cook. So I want to make sure I'm expressing this properly. We should not view the Torah as history necessarily. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. Let me let me just let me expand on that. All these things need to be expanded. But let me throw out what's a real shocker. Okay. What I, I okay. always love it when you have words that for us are just so obvious and familiar, and you think everybody who lived any time uh, in the course of human history must have had a word for X or Y or Z. And then you discover there are cultures that don't have that. So, for example, let me give you a list of words that do not exist in the Tanakh and do not exist in Chazal. By Chazal, I mean, let's say, through the Talmud, okay? Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no word for history. There's no word for fact or fiction or religion or belief or law. Ah, this makes the world very interesting because we have to understand. I mean, obviously, they, they wrote about the past, right? 
And obviously there's emes and sheker, right? Truth and falsehood, but these are not all the same, okay? Now, to your question, Scott, about, so yeah, there's no word for what we call history. And it's not just about Jews, okay? All ancient writers, all those so-called ancient historians, Herodotus, and in the Middle Ages, the Venerable Bede, people who seem to be, they're writing about the past, uh, but what they're doing is under a whole set of different guidelines and rules than what modern historians do. And what they're doing really is a lot more like what Ruth Cook said. They are taking the received traditions about the past. There's a core of a story that will never change, but they will embellish the story because what they're primarily doing is chinuch, is instruction, is, is trying to, to penetrate the hearts of their listeners, whether, they, whether it's Romans about civic virtue or whether it's medieval Christians about piety. Okay, then how did ancients, to the degree that we can understand it at all, regard what we would now call history? In other words, when they were reading the Tanakh, when they were reading these stories or in other cultures, doesn't matter which one, when they're reading the account of Ramses II about what happened at this battle, what do they think they are doing? We now question whether this is true or false from a unitary point of view. Right. You're saying they did not think like that. So what were they thinking? And frankly, I'll tell you, Rabbi Berman, this is something which I never can really wrap my head around when I've heard this answer before, the idea that, and I understand that it's true, that we nowadays have a different understanding of what history is or the concept of history is kind of a relatively new phenomenon. So what were people thinking then? I just have a hard time understanding what that means. Yeah, so so today what happens is this, I mean, just just to, I mean, I'm sure there are many people saying, no, this can't possibly be what these two men are talking about. Uh, did you know <laughs> that you couldn't even study something called history until 1810? The first history department in the world was in, was in Berlin in 1810. You know, there were universities for many centuries before, places like Cambridge and Oxford. You could study philosophy, theology, medicine, law, not this thing called history. What we have today is the crisis of authority. That means when someone tells us something, we have no faith in what lesson to learn. But what you can do, if I'm talking to an historian or if I'm talking, if I'm opening up a newspaper, is what I will trust you to do, if you have a good track record, is give me the facts. Give me the facts, and then I will do with them what I see best. Tell me right. about the Arab-Israeli conflict. Tell me about, about uh, uh, the pandemic. Tell me about uh, climate change. Just give me facts. And of course, I'll read you and I'll read 10 other people because I can do that today because I'm sitting next to a keyboard and we can all check everything really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so more and more, we are relying on ourselves to make the message. And we rely, hopefully, on out media outlets. We hope, we cross our fingers uh, uh, to, that they will give us facts, or at least some of the facts, and then we can make sense of it ourselves. Right. Any, any historian today, we go and check them. We go and check. The historian writes a book, you say, ah, I don't know. Well, let me go. Let me just go see. First, you know, I, I look up what Dr. Wikipedia said, and, and on and on. Okay. This is all very And that new. seems like a self-evident thing to do. Like, yes, yes. We're, we're so used to that. We're so used to it. And yet even, and yet, Scott, you and I are old enough to know we weren't doing this 30 years ago, right? Okay. <laughs> Right. Now, once upon a time, nobody had sources. There was nothing dug up. There was no libraries. There was nothing. There was only the tradition. But more importantly than a lack of resources that we have today, thank God, as far as I'm concerned, that we have all this. It's a great blessing. The more important thing is that when someone wrote or when someone was listening or reading to something that would look to our eyes and ears as an historical account, what they understood is that what's really, really important here is not the factual accuracy of every little point in this story. That is all secondary to something else. And that is, who is it that's doing the writing? What is his status? And what is he trying to teach me? That's what's really important. And, and what does that mean, though? Okay, now I know who wrote it. Why is that important? Why do I care about that? Oh, because I need to be a good citizen in my society. A good citizen in my society, if you're in Rome, is knowing what civic virtue means. What is what is demanded of me? What what are my what are my fellow citizens going to be uh, uh, aiming for? And therefore, what do I need to aim for? How will I look bad if I do if I do X, Y, and Z? And if you are a religious person, and it's here, it doesn't matter whether you're a, whether we're talking about Jew or Christian or pagan. When you have a high priest or some 
other spiritual leader who is writing a, a, a treatise or a narrative that comes to teach certain points, as Chumash does, then we under then, then the way in which people approach this was, oh wow, Moshe Rabbeinu, or the Rabbanu Shalom himself is writing to me to teach me about what is expected of me in his world. What could be more important than that? And if this all sounds incredibly counterintuitive, Scott, and viewers and listeners at home, uh, the best proof that this is always the way in which Jews read Kitvei Kodesh and all of Chazal is the entire world of Medrash, of Medrash, where on every story you have all sorts of Tanaim and Amoraim retelling the story and embellishing them and, and making up making up things right and left. And did you ever know? And they knew right? they were making them up, you say. They knew they were not speaking about fact and history. Because there was no word history. There was no word fact. What there was, was the importance of passing on the cardinal values of the Masora to every generation. That requires tweaking. And this is why in the world of Medrash, you, unlike in the, you know, in the Gemara, when the Gemara makes, brings arguments, what is the halacha on this? Well, there's a shakla and a tarya and there's proofs and, and, and oftentimes even at the end. And from this, we conclude that we go like Rava and not like a bite, etc. But that type of striving to figure out which opinion is right, who do we go by? You never find that in the world of Medrash. You never find that the Medrash Rabbah brings five opinions and then says, gosh, well, they're all different. They all tell the story differently. Who's right? No, 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 no. They're not engaged in that. They're not concerned with that. What they're concerned with is, is, is promulgating ideas and lessons. And therefore, the most important, the most important thing about a Medrash that starts, Amar Rabbi Asa, is that it was Rabbi Asa who was speaking. And we hold by Rabbi Asa. And therefore, we want to learn what he has to tell us. Here's my question when it comes to this. This is a fascinating approach, but doesn't it become almost a gateway to anarchy? Once I say that history is not the goal and history wasn't even a thing, fact wasn't even a concept per se. So it's one thing to say that Brashid is speaking about, I don't know if metaphor is the right term, but it's not speaking about a literal creation in six days. And similarly, we're not speaking about a literal serpent speaking to a literal human being, perhaps. I can say that about the Teva of Noah, but perhaps maybe Avraham Avinu didn't exist. Maybe there was never an exodus. How do I know if there's anything in the Torah which should be taken literally? How do I know where the line is drawn between literary approaches that say this is accurate, something did happen, or when nothing at all happened and the message is all that matters? Sure. So this is a slippery slope, and and, and the, Scott, your question is is the obvious and important one. And here I would say this, that, that um, in the ancient world, all writings that are about, let's put it, there are writings that are about, that seem very mythical, you know, they're about gods and they're about angels and they're about supernatural beings. And, um, you know, those have a very mythic quality. All the writings that we know from the ancient world that are about earthly beings at set times and places that we all know about, you know, this was in Jerusalem, it was in the eighth century, you know, or anything comparable in Mesopotamian literature, in Egyptian literature, and on and on. Uh, we don't see that, 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 that ancient writers ever wrote this thing that we would call fiction. They wrote some myths about, you know, the world were clearly very mythical figures. Uh, and I think that this is the same, the same, the same, the same bar, the same level of uh, uh, suspicion or lack of suspicion needs to be brought to the Tanakh as well. The events in the Tanakh largely happen as they are reported. With that, there is room for embellishment. I would say that the the, the, the I want to and I want to I want to flesh this out a little bit more. I think that there there are really very few places where you can look at a story in Tanakh and say, "Gosh, this just appears to be symbolic and mythic." Uh, the only places that I would say that this is even possible to entertain is within these very partials that we're reading now, the first eleven prakim of Sefer Breshit. Uh, I think it's not... Which is effectively the approach of the Ramban as well. The Ramban okay. more or less says something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we're talking about the the, the, the account of, of Masebreshit, Gan Eden, uh, the Mabul, and Migdal Bavel. I find it very interesting. These are events that are, are, are stories that are almost never again referenced in the Tanakh. You know, obviously, you know, the idea of Briata Olam is, you know, 
But the, the, the accounts of Gan Eden, not so much. Migdal Bavel, very little. The Mabul, you know, a little bit, but really not that much. Uh, once we get to Avraham, then all of those stories and all of those characters are referenced again and again and again. And it seems that the Tanakh itself is looking differently at uh, the Avot and, and, and everything thereafter than it is on the things that came earlier. I would say also that it's clear that the Tanakh itself takes itself seriously in terms of the basic history of what it's describing. How do I know this? Because one can hold up a Tanakh and say, what is this book about? Well, it comes to teach us in broad fashion, demonstrated over and over again, over many centuries, that when Am Yisrael does the will of the Rebona Shalom, then it is rewarded. And when it fails to do the will of the Rebona Shalom, it is punished. Now, in order for that message to hold any water for future generations, it must be that the Tanakh itself considers that Amishel actually did the right thing from time to time and did the wrong thing from time to time, and that Hashem responded. Because if this is all just, then how can we learn anything? If that, that and what I think, what I just said is, you know, about about Amishel being rewarded or punished depending on its actions. That is a very accurate description of the entire Tanakh. It would make no sense on its own terms if all of that was just myth. You can't learn from that and say, oh, but now today it's really going to work. You know, when Amisrael is good, we're going to get rewarded. And when we're bad, we're going to get punished. That only works if that was all also true in the source text for these ideas. Then one of the major challenges that comes not necessarily from within the Torah itself, not from source criticism per se, but from external sources like archaeology, is the question of the historicity of some of the events in Tanakh. And I mean the larger event. I don't mean the specific numbers per se, which, sure. as you've said, can be embellished, can be there mm-hmm. be teaching a, a reason. Mm-hmm. But, for example, the entire narrative of the Exodus, I've heard scholars say, well, if it happened, it was just a few thousand people and it really wasn't the way it happened here at all, because of a lack of archaeological evidence, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not vouching for that approach, but I want to know how you would address that. Right. I have a lot to say about this. Uh, I think that there is tons of evidence for the Exodus. I can't vouch for each and every Maka, okay? And the whole issue of supernatural things happening, that, that that's more of a philosophical question. Uh, but that Am Yisrael were slaves in Egypt and were redeemed in the time of Ramses II it seems to me there's plenty of strong evidence. Um, um, I've written a lot about this. It's also in the book, uh, how uh, the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, especially the story of the uh, uh, fleeing from the Egyptians once they're out, and then the whole story of crossing the sea and defeating the Egyptians there. Uh, what, what, what in our Chumash is, is uh, Shmot, Perik, Yudalit, and Ted Bav. The way in which the, 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 the Chumash is written there is clearly... Uh, polemicizing against uh, these the, 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 the compositions that I mentioned before, uh, the Kaddish inscriptions of Ramses II. The Torah is clearly familiar with these inscriptions and is kind of turning them on their head to show, ah, you think Ramses is really great, his greatest event against the Hittites? Well, what we're doing to him is even greater than that. There are tons of allusions uh, in Chomish to that. Once you see these, these, uh, these inscriptions, it's very clear. In fact, there are actual drawings that we have in several locations in ancient Egypt of Ramses' throne tent. And when you look at the throne tent, its dimensions, its size, what it's surrounded by, wow, it looks an awful lot like the Mishkan, an awful lot like the Mishkan. And there are archaeologists that say what the Torah was doing was trying to concretize for Am Yisrael coming out of Mitzrayim, who are not able to see a Kaddish Baruch Hu, who might not even be able to hear a Kaddish Baruch Hu, to kind of depict him in, well, he's kind of like, the Rams, he's the great, only greater. Um, so I think that there's a lot, a lot of evidence uh, uh, for Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Let me, let me just say here, let me give a little plug, Scott. Please. Uh, Emir Tzashem, in January of 2022, I am taking a group of tourists uh, to Egypt with Tanakh in hand uh, to go see all of these incredible inscriptions and to see the incredible drawings that are all over the place, perfectly preserved, that teach us about a zillion different things in Chumash. This is where it all began. Uh, and if anybody would like to join the tour, they can get the details uh, at Kesher Tours with a K. Kesher Tours, it's all right there. And I'll be leading that tour. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'm going to mention something that you said earlier. You said nearly all 
biblical critics, nearly all Bible scholars, work with the assumption that our understanding of the unitary nature of, of literature should apply to the Bible, and that is the fallacy as you see it. My question is this. What you say today is very compelling. Why is it that nearly all biblical scholars are disagreeing with you and don't necessarily see it as you see uh, it? Or am uh, I misunderstanding you? Uh, 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 disagreeing with me. You know, it's very interesting, Scott. Okay, let, let, me, let me tell you something about the world of academia, okay? So I mentioned that my book on Imamin is, is, is a popular presentation of a book that I wrote uh, uh, in 2017 with Oxford University Press, Inconsistency in the Torah, okay? Ancient Literary Criticism and the Limits, uh, uh, Ancient Literary Convention and the Limits of Source Criticism, which has now been reviewed, I think 13 or 14 times in academic literature. I'm gonna tell you the good news and the bad news, okay? The good news, Scott, is that all of the reviews are positive. That's good news. Let me tell you the bad news. All of the reviews are positive. That's the bad news. That's bad news. Why is that bad news? Doesn't an author want to see that everybody loves their book? You know what? This is academia, and I'm pulling the carpet out from a lot of people. Why aren't they writing reviews against me? And this is a book published by Oxford that's already been you know, popularly and uh, positively reviewed by many others. And what happens in academia, unfortunately, Scott, is really no different than what we see in all of society. If you watch Fox News, you probably don't read the New York Times. And if you read the New York Times, you probably don't watch Fox News. We are all looking for the media outlets that merely will confirm what we already know to be the truth. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sorry to say that I can't point to any scholarly response to my work that is critical of it. I am certain that there are people that don't accept what I say. I am certain that I am not the majority opinion, but this is how, the, this, is how this world works, okay? I see. I wanna ask about your approach and how it relates to Chazal, because on the one hand, there's a question about how a religious Jew can understand the Torah, Tanakh, let's call the Torah, for example, being a single unified document given to us by God through Moshe, etc. Then there's the question of, well, do the approaches that preserve Tanakh's unitary character and unity, do they also jive with the way the Chazal understood it? Mm. The way that you explain things such as the numbers, they are not necessarily literal, and so on and so forth. Although it might keep the Torah intact, so to speak, it might also come up as a problem against the words of Chazal. So how do you deal with that balance? And also the Rishonim as well. That's a very important question. Look, uh, our Torah is very ancient, okay? And it's been interpreted by our Gdole Israel ever since, starting with Moshe Rabbeinu, his own interpretations of things, which we can see in Sefer Dvarim, to the ways in which Nevi'im understood Chomish. We can see that by the way in which they quote Sokim and sometimes change things around. Um, and obviously on and on through Tanaim and Moraim and Rishonim and into our own time. And the truth is, is, is that it is not possible, Scott, for anyone to make one harmonious picture of all the views that are now part of our Masora. Our Masora is a big tent of many different views that don't really all hang together in terms of their conceptual coherence. They hang together as, you know, this Shivim Panim Torah. There is the Halacha that we follow, which sometimes follows Kabbalah and sometimes doesn't follow Kabbalah you know, this Shivim Panim Torah. Shivim Panim Torah doesn't mean just at any one time you and I might have a, a, a machloket about something, you know, or a different way of looking at things. It's also a recognition that at different periods in history, Doli Yisrael looked at things in different ways that don't always drive together. So this is not an issue of, you know, uh, Berman, you have a way of understanding Chomish that doesn't necessarily jive with the way the Maharal did. But you know what? The way in which the Rambam looked at everything doesn't necessarily drive with the way the Maharal did or the way in which a Medrash did. So this is all, you know, what I, what I, what I try to demonstrate is that the way in which I am, the, the type, this, this type of approach of looking at how things used, how people used to think and write in the ancient world is, is which sounds very modern, uh, has deep roots, especially in the Rambam and other Rishonim as well, uh, that we've kind of lost touch with in recent centuries. So I have on what I have legs upon which to stand. They're not everyone's legs. But then again, no approach that we have to almost anything in our Masora is agreed by by everybody. 
except of course, you know, the, the contours of the halachic system. And in the end, that takes a little bit from here and a little bit from there. In that case, let me ask about something which you wrote in your book. You point out in Animamin that, I say your book, obviously we have more than one book. I'm referring to specifically Animamin, your most recent popular work. You say that nowhere does the Talmud actually assert that belief in revelation of the entire Torah, as we have it, to Moshe, by God, is a principle of faith. And indeed, Professor Menachem Kellner from Haifa has pointed out that the concept of principles of faith is something which originated with well, certainly after the, the uh, time of Chazal and time of the Goanim or the early Rishonim, while the Talmud certainly does assume that the entire Torah was given from God to Moshe, that stated explicitly, nonetheless, it's not presented as a principle of faith per se, as we understand that terminology today. Yes, the Mishnah and Perak of Sanhedrin does imply something that's like a principle of faith, but not, according to the Peshat of the Mishnah, the way that the Rambam would formulate it as principles per se. So my question for you is, what is the role of principles of faith for a believing Jew? Or in different terms, is it necessary for an Orthodox Jew to accept the Rambam's eighth principle, namely that God gave us the Torah through Moshe? Yeah, so the whole issue of, of principles of faith, the whole second half of the book is about this. Um, I don't go as far as Professor Kellner, who, as I understand it, says, well, you know, this was this hasn't been really accepted and we can, you know, there's a lot of flexibility with it. I think that, that principles of faith uh, for a thousand years have played a role, have played an important role and continue to play an important role. Having said that, I wanna point out a few things. And that is that um, it is fascinating to me that we don't have one single canonized version of what those principles of faith are. So for, you know, we have a Mishnah, everyone agrees, we know we can all agree what the language of the mission is on every mission. Okay, there's a word here, word there, kitveyad, manuscripts, but 99.9%, we know what the Mishnah is. We know what the Shulchan Aruch is. We know what the, the Mishnah Brura is. We know what the Rambam is. When we speak about the Gimel Ikare Emuna, it is remarkable how many different versions of text we're talking about, and no one ever really tried to pin it down. It's also interesting to me how vastly different approaches uh, Gedola Yisrael have taken to them. Let me just that, 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 that previous point, by the way, that we don't even have a set text. Um, when you look at what the Mikubalim did with the Ikare Yamuna, I'm thinking of especially the Shla, the Shneluchot Abrit, or the Ramchal, for that matter, in one of his works, uh, they all come to very, very varying interpretations of just what those Ikare Emuna are. Even the Rambam, even about the eighth Ikar Emuna, which you cited, Scott, about Tramina Shamayim, I think that there are significant differences between his expression of it in what many would say is kind of the earliest text to this, which is his, his Hakdama, his introduction to the 10th parak of Sanhedrin, where he lays out about five different aspects of what he thinks go into Torah Min Shemaim. And then you look at it at, in, 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 in the Mishnah Torah, where he discusses this in Hilchot Yesodeya Torah and in Hilchot Shuva. And there, there are differences there. And he seems to have changed his opinion about some things over time. I'll leave mm -hmm. readers, we have to leave something for people to read in the books. So I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that there. But I, I would say, I would say that given the various different uh, texts which people point to, uh, or the various different formulations that people point to, and if you think that what you have in the sitter is the authoritative, you know, you go to the last page of your sitter, it says, Rabbi Berman, it's right here. You know, we don't even know who wrote that. We don't know who wrote that. We don't know who wrote the Ashkenazi version of that, and we don't know who wrote the, the, the Sephardic version of that, and it certainly wasn't the Rambam. Nobody holds that it was the Rambam. Right. Um, um, it doesn't even agree with the Rambam. It doesn't even agree with the Rambam, yeah. Beyond the differing, the differing formulaic expressions of the Ikari Emuna, uh, the vastly different ways in which the Doli Yisrael have, have themselves viewed the Ikari Emuna. Some Doli Yisrael didn't like the Ikari Emuna at all. The, the Ma'arik and Rav Shalom Shachna, who was the, 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 the Rav of the Ramah, uh, they didn't like the idea of Ikari Emuna at all. They said, you know, we don't really want people reciting this, and we don't want people singing, you know, Yigdal, which is based on on uh, on on, uh, on on the Ikariyamuna, because what people what happens is that people stop doing mitzvahs. They think all they need to do is believe. So it's been very it's been a very interesting journey over time, and the Ikariyamuna have played a far greater role in the last couple of centuries as kind of a benchmark of who's in and who's out 
But I think that all of these opinions, all of these formulations, I can really sum them up in a single sentence where there is unity from wall to wall. And that is, is that all Gdole Yisrael, since the Rambam onward, their view of the Ikari Yamuna has always been guided by one principle, and that is given where I, the various Dole Yisrael, where I am living, the time that I am that I am living in, the community that I am addressing, what is their spiritual needs? What do I need to tell them about the Ikare Emuna or any one of them that will lead them to greater Yirat Shamayim and Kiyom HaMitzvot? Full stop. It just turns out that at different times, different Gedolim have told different people different things. But that is what has always guided them. And that's what guides us today as well. Okay, we don't have too much time left, but there's a question I want to ask you, and that is what I might call perceived immorality that appears in the Torah. Let me give an easy example. In Bamidbar, Perak Lamed Aleph, the war with Midian, and people come back after having killed all the men. Basically genocide. Let's call it what it is. They've killed all the men in Midian. There were five kings. It wasn't just, a, you know, ten people. They go kill all the men, and Moshe gets angry with them. And he says, what do you mean? You left all the women alive. So now kill all the little boys, all the male children, doesn't matter how old they are. And any woman who has had intercourse, you have to kill her as well. And Chazal even say that means any woman old enough to have intercourse. And the only people who can be left alive are, according to the simple shot, I suppose, women who are virgins. That is a very troubling passage. And there are others like that, both in the command, the command to kill the seven nations, the command to kill Amalek, and the historical approach, I'm using that term uh, carefully, that is described in the parakel I just mentioned. What would you say to somebody who's bothered by something like that? Yeah, I would say that morals are changing all the time. All the time. We know this, Scott, in our own lifetime, okay? The way in which our own community speaks about sexual preference and, and orientation is vastly different than the way it was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago and is moving all the time. All right. And, you know, we look today and we say, wow, how could people have thought or not thought those things 20 years ago? You know, that was us. That was us. Right. We have changed in our own lifetimes, our own short, brief lifetimes on this earth. OK, now, if we are changing our morals as we speak, OK, then should it surprise us that, the, that morals have changed over time as well? I mean, I think that even Chazal clearly, clearly recognize this. I'll just give one example, okay? It's clear from the Torah that the Torah views Yibum as a beautiful and important mitzvah. The situation where uh, a young couple, the man has passed away and they didn't have children. And now the Torah encourages one of the brothers of the deceased to marry the young widow, okay? And it's very clear that that's what the man is expected to do. And if he doesn't do it, then we boosh him out. You know, we embarrass him publicly with chalitza. Okay? Chalitza is supposed to be embarrassing for him. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Because this is the way in which we perpetuate the name of the deceased. This is the way in which we, pro we provide a guarantee of protection for, for the woman. This is a great thing. All of Megillat Ruth is one big championing of this mitzvah gibum, that all the events, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, or, you know, uh, organize all of them, so they all funnel into the final pseudo gibum that, that Boaz performs with Ruth. We don't have another mitzvah anywhere where there's an entire book devoted to a single mitzvah. Now that said, what you find is that by the time we get to the Gemara, and the Gemara discusses gibum and chalitza, it totally changes the, the, the meaning of the verses so that when it says the divorlav ziknei that when the when the zikenim speak to the potential yavam, which in Chumash clearly is, you know what you need to do. We want you to do this. This is important for society. In Gemara, it turns out in Yavamot, what the Gemara says is they say to him, the the words that, that they, the elders spoke to the man is, are you sure you want to do this? You know, are, is your marriage, your current marriage strong enough for this? This is a total turning things on their head. Because by the time of Chazal, monogamy is now the norm. People have enough money to, monogamy is, 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 is a luxury. Only cultures that are well off financially have this. So what you see is that even within the Masorah, values are constantly changing. And, and it's a mistake for us to think that everything in the Torah all the values that are in the Torah, especially social, societal values, 
are set in stone. Yes, the Torah is the word of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it's not the final word of God. It's the first word of God, and it's given over to Gedolei Yisrael in every generation, depending on the things that are changing, to adapt the message of the Torah for the times, and that includes some of the values. And you take that as far as even saying that, okay, once upon a time, killing all the men and women as well was an okay value. That's yes. a value which we could accept. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Okay. You know, That's, we would um, need to understand, you know, what that meant back then, what it means today. But yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't want right. to be judged. Okay. It's hard to judge people by a standard that's vastly different than their own time. Okay. And I, I you know, I, I, I take, hopefully, humbly speaking, a little bit of pride, all of us, that our, we're open. We're open to some change about the issue that I mentioned before, about how we view people who have a different sexual orientation than the majority do, uh, our notion of gender and what, you know, what women can do and should do, whether we're talking within, within, you know, within the shul, outside. These things are changing all the time. And I think that we all recognize that, that, that you know, a sensitive, slow process is probably the way, it's probably the way to go. So before we go, I want to ask you on an educational, pedagogical level, whether you think that books like yours, you mentioned how in the yeshivish world, they're not suggesting that everyone put it on a standard yet. But do you think that people should look at academic approaches to the Torah and to Bible as a means of bolstering faith? Or is it something which a person should only really approach and books like yours only read if they're already bothered by something which they've already read on the internet or elsewhere? How should a person approach this? Yeah, I, 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 I'm a strong believer that, that uh, all of this stuff is not just for people who are struggling. Uh, I think that there is a tremendous amount of ancient context for the Torah that produces beautiful, beautiful insights that, that, that really just contribute to our Vodas Hashem, whether you're struggling or whether you're not. There's a question of you know, what and when uh, to introduce and at what age, et cetera. But uh, I've had a lot of people who have said to me, you know, I read your book. Um, it was kind of interesting to me. It's not that I was struggling at all. And it's just opened up so many ways of thinking about our Avodah Hashem. And that's exactly what I wanted. So as a final word, Rabbi Berman, what would you tell people right now who are listening, who are interested in academic approaches, and perhaps they've even read some academic approaches? Would you encourage them to continue their searching even beyond your book? Perhaps look at books which don't have the same traditional approach that you have? Or would you say, stop when you're before you get in trouble, how would you think? What, what do you think is the right no, approach? I, for that? I think I think that that uh, well, always I think that it's the only way to serve a kaddish baruch is of the chabenis. We have to serve with the meat of truth, which is something which is a blessing that the Rebbeinu Shalom gave for us. And to tell anyone curtail your search of truth is never a way to go. Okay, I, I think having said that, what I would what I would say to, to to viewers and listeners is, as we all know, on any topic out there, wow, there's an amazing range of opinion, a range of opinion. And, and you can read something that seems very compelling, but until you have read uh, the counter arguments by equally proficient uh, authorities on the other side of the issue, then you won't be getting the full picture. And I would just say that, you know, anything you read, you have to search around uh, to see, you know, is there some defendant of the Masora who has something compelling to say? Okay, that, that's, that's what I would say. This has been very, very enlightening. And I appreciate your time, Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Scott, and uh, Shana Tova to everybody. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. 
I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.